have a Bible, you want to take it and turn to Isaiah chapters 8 and 9, because when you preach from these Old Testament passages, often you have to look at larger context, and we'll be doing that this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you back on the round tables. Uh, well, um, a little over a week ago, uh, our culture kicked off the holiday season with Black Friday. And it was the beginning of sales and shopping and full parking lots and more shopping and busyness and more shopping and parties and, let's be honest, mayhem and stress and more shopping. And it's today that the church much of the church around the world begins Advent. Advent. The word means coming or arrival, and it's not about the coming of long shopping lines or the coming of full parking lots. It's not about the coming of Santa Claus or sentimentality. It's about the once and future coming of Jesus Christ. And that means what Advent is primarily about is not shopping and and, and frantic planning, but waiting and hoping. It's an ironic thing that, um, well, that it's precisely at this time. I mean, let's be honest. We don't like to wait, do we? Uh, have you noticed that the holiday creep keeps getting closer and closer to summer every year? You know, at first it was Black Friday. We couldn't, like, give that day uh, up. It had to start right after Thanksgiving. Then it started happening, like, in the night. People are rushing Walmart at, at 12 a.m. But now, if you have an Amazon Prime membership, you can get Black Friday deals the whole week before. Starbucks starts their Christmas holiday drinks and cups uh, November 1st. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for the day when in July I go have my, you know, eggnog latte. Because it's going to keep wrapping back around. We don't like to wait. We like things our way and right away. And, and you know, like, my daughter, she's, uh, she's picked up on this. The other day she said... Um, can I, uh, can I have my, you have my Christmas present bought yet, mommy? Uh, she goes, well, can I, can I see it? I was like, no, you can't see it. And she said, well, I'm not going to play with it. I I just want to see it. (laughs) We, we don't like to wait. And this morning, uh, you know, my, I'm working on my sermon and my daughter comes up. Yes, I'm working on my sermon in the morning that I'm preaching it. That happens every Sunday. Just, I don't want you any, under any illusions that I have it all figured out. And uh, she comes up to me, and it was very sweet. I, um, it's awesome. It's my birthday. Uh, and so she comes up, and she's next to me, and she's, you know, she's, she's like, yeah, it's a special day. And she goes, yeah. She goes, it's Christmas, right? <laughs> No, it's not Christmas, Neve. Oh, I wish it were Christmas. <laughs> she gets it. 
And it's all of us. We don't like to wait. We like things our way and right away. And it's amazing that it is just at this time when the holiday craze keeps pressing itself upon us more and more and more and more that points up this fact that we like things our way right away and we have no patience and we cannot wait. It's just in that time that the church celebrates this season which is all about waiting and hoping and delayed gratification. See, we need this season. Fleming Rutledge who just wrote a book on this topic, said, of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church, asks the most important ethical questions and presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. We need this season. We need this season to remind us that we are the waiting people of God. We need this season to remind us that we can't have everything our way right away. We need this season to orient us to our place in history. And that is stretched taut between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we live in that tension and we cannot do away with it. We need this season to remind us that our ultimate satisfaction and our deepest longings and the healing that we need so much and that only heaven can bring, it does not come by way of two-day shipping. That we have to wait and hope and long Long for a better world, another world, a world which only Jesus Christ can bring about. See, here's my thesis this morning. My thesis is that we have become so comfortable with the now that we've forgotten the not yet. And because we've become so comfortable with the now and we've forgotten the not yet, we have lost the fundamental cry of the church, which is, O Lord Jesus, come quickly, Maranatha. And to regain that cry, we actually have to talk about the darkness. And I realize that that's not something that people want to do during this time when the holidays are encroaching and it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. But I don't mind talking about the darkness. In fact, um, I think it's really important, not because I'm, not because I'm just uh, gloomy or pessimistic, but because it's against the darkness that the light shines brighter. Because what good is hope if you aren't hoping for anything and you have nothing for which to hope? What good is waiting if you have everything now, your way and right away? And so, and so we begin in this passage in Isaiah with the people in the dark because Advent starts in the dark. So let me pray for us. God, we are your waiting and wandering people.
we ask that you would use this time to stir up in us a hope for all your promises to come true, for Jesus to come again. Because we need hope to defeat our doubt and our cynicism and even our empty sentimentality that tries to cover over our real longings and needs. We pray this in the name of the one who promised to come soon. Amen. Well, chapter 9, verses 2, tell us, uh, describe a people who are walking in darkness and who dwell in a land of deep darkness. I don't know about you, but I don't really like the dark. Uh, My house is pretty dark, and our front porch light has been fairly intermittent lately. And so when I come home at night, it's often just totally dark. And as I sit there scrambling and for my keys and my key ring, looking for the right key that's supposed to go in this hole, and then looking for the hole that I can't see or can't find, uh, and then I start hearing the rustling of the bushes around me, I get that, I don't know, it's something, I think it must be a lizard or something that's like crawling up the back of my spine. You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and then I start getting like the heebie-jeebies. Uh, I think that's a technical term. The doctor taught it to me. And as I'm getting the heebie-jeebies, I'm just like, I just want to get in my house. And then I get in my house and nobody's there and it's all dark. And I'm like, ah, this is kind of weird. I heard something, right? I mean, I, I don't like the dark. I'm kind of scared of the dark. Um, I, I'm happy to know that I'm not the only one. Actually, Phillips Lighting did a, a study in Australia and found that 72% of the people that they surveyed, adults, are afraid of the dark. 72%. Uh, and, and most of them actually felt unsafe in their own homes when they were alone. So maybe I should move to Australia because those are my people. So obviously, you are not giving me empathy right now. While I'm doing this, you're all like, what are you talking about? Nobody's giving me the nodding. I understand, Kyle. No one, right? So I'm moving to Australia. See ya. Isaiah begins with the people who are dwelling in deep darkness. To understand it, you have to understand a bit of the historical background. At this point in time, the kingdom of Israel is divided. There is the kingdom and the northern kingdom. Uh, The southern kingdom is where the Davidic throne is. That is where God's promises are said to be, uh, are going to be fulfilled. But there are lots of foreign enemies and things are bad right now. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, but over in the northern kingdom, they're making some alliances. And these alliances are to protect them from, from some outside enemies that are coming. And Ahaz, the king of Judah in the southern kingdom, he wants to join these alliances because he's a little scared about the Assyrians that are approaching. But Isaiah, this prophet, comes to him and he says, look, do not make an alliance. Do not make an alliance with these foreign people. Do not make an alliance with the northern kingdom. But trust God. Trust that God will take care of the kingdom because he has made promises about this Davidic throne. So don't make any of these alliances. But Isaiah doesn't listen. He goes and he makes these alliances. And then chapter 7 tells us all that will come about as a result of this. He says that the, the land of Judah will be completely occupied, chapter 7 18 and 19, that the people of Judah will be stripped and humiliated 
verse 20. That they will be absolutely impoverished, verse 21. And in verses 23 through 25, it says that the land will be, their land will be dried up, will be barren, will be desolate. What Isaiah is describing is a coming, a coming victory by the Assyrians that is total and complete. Complete victory on the side of the Assyrians. Complete loss on the side of the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's these people, this darkness that Isaiah is speaking into. And we know this darkness, don't we? We know this darkness. It was just about three weeks ago, some 57 miles south of here, that an ex-Marine walked into a line dancing bar and opened fire. It was college night, and lots of college students were there. Twelve people were killed. Twenty-one people were injured. Steve Dark. And everybody's searching for a motive, and no one can figure out the motive. Everybody's asking why, and no one can figure out why. Deep darkness. Only three days before that in Florida, Tallahassee, someone for misogynistic motivations walked into a yoga class. Killed two women. Injured five more for taking their own life. Just this week, I read yet another story about how in the entertainment industry, someone who was very high up was silencing people through money and through promotions because of the abuse that this person had had done to women. Deep darkness. And that's at the same time and in the same week when one player is, uh, is released from a team because of domestic vi- uh, violence um, a couple times over and picked up by another team and no one bats an eye. And at the same time, another player is released, but they're only released after a video is shown of them kicking a woman in a hallway. And, and that is released only after uh, it comes to light, after we learn that the NFL was totally turning a blind eye to this. Deep darkness. And this darkness, it's not just, it's not just in mass shootings, and it's not just in, in systemic abuse, in the entertainment and sports and other industries. It's also in our families, in our family histories, and it's in our own personal lives. We know this darkness. Now, I realize that this is not what you were expecting to hear, probably, and wanted to hear during the most wonderful time of the year. But I think it's what you need to hear because the most wonderful time of the year is when all this stuff is going on. And we can't escape the darkness. It's all around us. If we're those who pray, this is what occupies our prayers. 
If we're those who don't pray, it's because the darkness has grown so deep that we have stopped because we've grown cynical and hopeless. And the older we get, the more we experience this darkness and the more we realize it's in the world. I had no idea when I was 20 the darkness that I do now. And now I have an expectation that it'll just grow deeper the older I get. And the older we get, we also realize that we can't fix it. That we can't do anything to fix it. That's why the poet Wendell Berry in one of his poems said, it's hard to have hope. It is harder as you grow old. And so we ask questions in the midst of this thick cloud of darkness like, where is God in all the darkness? Because we can't solve the problem. And sometimes it feels like God is hiding, doesn't it? Truly you are a God who hides himself. Isaiah 45:15. Did you know that Isaiah confesses that God is a God who hides himself? And note that he doesn't say that God is a God who is sometimes hidden. It says that God is a God who actively hides himself. What do we do with this? What do we do in the midst of the thickness of the darkness of life? When it seems like the dark is so thick and God is hiding himself, what do we do? Well, the answer is in our text. This is the Advent question, and this is in, eight, in chapter 8, verse 17, gives us the Advent answer. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. How do we wait for this hidden God? Well, I think Isaiah tells us, he gives us three resources at least that we can do, three things that we can do to wait for the hidden God. The first thing that he commands the people to do and he instructs them to do is to look to Scripture. When calamity strikes, when this calamity strikes as people are wont to do, people look for answers. They want to know why this darkness and why did this happen. That's what we all want to do when tragedy strikes in our lives. We want to know why. Give us a reason. Why? And these people are no different. In verse 12 of chapter 8, that's why Isaiah has to say, do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. See, they are looking for an answer for why this happened. They're coming up with their political theories. And then verse 19, it says that they will inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. They are going to look anywhere and everywhere to try to figure out what is going on. And Isaiah says, do not listen to them. Do not follow the suit. But verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. Isaiah says, if you want to know how to make sense of life and make sense of this situation, you need to turn to Scripture, to the teaching and to the testimony. 
And then he says in verse 16 that if the people, this generation will not listen, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples for a later generation because this teaching is enduring and it is the enduring answer and it's the only way that you are going to have any light in the midst of this darkness. Turn to the scriptures. That's what's going to help you make sense and navigate your way through the darkness. You know, the, um, the New Testament was first, a critical edition of the Greek New Testament was first put um, together by a, uh, a Dutch scholar named Erasmus. And Erasmus, uh, he, in the preface to that critical edition, he wrote this about the words in the New Testament. He said, these words, quote, render Jesus so fully present that you would see less if you gazed upon him with your very eyes. Now that is a bold claim. Erasmus is saying that if Jesus were standing here today in front of us, guess what? That would not be clear. That would be less clear than the Bible that you have in front of you. Now that's a bold claim, but you know what? Someone else makes that claim a long time before Erasmus. The Apostle Peter when he's writing to the churches, he says in the letter of Second Peter, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. And then he goes on to describe what that was. How we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, I have been up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and I have seen Jesus in all of his glory. And there was Moses, and there was Elisha there, and it was amazing. And then he goes on to say this in verse 19 of chapter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter's saying, I've been up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and I've seen Jesus in all his glory, and you have something better. The prophetic word confirmed, which he goes on, to say you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. As a lamp shining in a dark place. Are you in a dark place this morning? Turn to the scriptures, to the teaching and to the testimony. Turn to the scriptures and turn particularly to those scriptures that remind you of the promise of his coming and the hope of his return. Turn to passages like was read earlier in 2 Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and exposed, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And this is the posture, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. 
waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. That is the fundamental posture of the people of God in the now time, and that is the Advent posture. We wait for the coming day of God, and we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Meditate on this, and meditate on the picture of the new heavens and the new earth that is given here. In Revelation 21 and 22, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more darkness. No need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No more darkness. And nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. No more darkness. And night will be no more. And night will be no more. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever with him. No more darkness, no more mass shootings, no more hate crime, no more poverty, no more misogyny, no more deformity, no more idolatry, no more darkness. Meditate on that. Contemplate that. And no more hidden God. Did you catch that? You will see his face. You will see his face. These words are trustworthy and true, John tells us. Meditate on these words. Look to the scriptures. That's the first thing Isaiah tells us. The second thing that, I ta- ta- that Isaiah tells us to do as we wait on the hidden God is to look to the Savior. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says that this people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep dar- darkness, on them a light has shone. Now Isaiah is talking about the future even though he is using past tenses because God has promised it, it is as good as done. And notice that the result of this light will be Joy multiplied, verse 3. That oppression will cease, verse 4. And that every instrument of war will be done away with, verse 5. And how does this light come to shine into this darkness? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. God's way of shining his light into the darkness, is to give a child. God's way of handling the bullies of the world is not to become a bigger bully. It's the way of humility and peace. But this child will be no ordinary child. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, And prince of peace. Now these are 
These are royal images. When it calls Jesus a wonderful counselor, I mean, we think, well, I got a good counselor. They're really great. They listen to me. They hear me out. They're really empathetic. They're a safe, they're non-anxious presence. I love that, right? That's not what it's, Jesus is a good counselor, but that's not what this is talking about. When it says that he's a wonderful counselor, it means that he is a military strategist who will outwit all the others. When it says that he is the mighty God, it means that he has the power of God reigning through him. When it says that he is the everlasting father, it means that he takes care of and looks over and governs with tender, loving care the citizens of his kingdom. But he does not, his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He doesn't use their strategies. He is the prince of peace. He doesn't match violence with violence. He is the one who actually takes on the darkness and enters into the darkness and he is slayed by the oppressors that he might liberate those who are oppressed by their oppressive tendencies. This is the light that shines. And notice the depth of this light. Notice how deep it goes. In verses 1 and 2, we hear about Zebulon and Naphtali in the land of Galilee. Now, those might not mean anything to you, but a little bit of a geography lesson, because that's always interesting in a sermon. Uh, these are the lands to the north of Israel. And that means that when outside invaders came in, guess who got hit first? Zebulun, Naphtali, the land of Galilee. And that means that even if, even if invaders didn't get all the way into Judah, even into the capital, these folks still got hit over and over and over again. They got pummeled one after another, one after another, one time after another. They were always getting rocked by the outside invaders. And notice, this is where the light is coming first. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And it's in the very places where sin abounds that grace abounds all the more. It's why when Isaiah comes before God a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 6 and he feels his need, the place where he feels it most acutely is in his lips. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And you know what God touches first to heal him? His lips with a coal on the altar. It's why when Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus has him confess his love for him three times. What's happening in these scenarios is this. God is going to the place where it hurts the most. And he's saying, that's where I'm going to heal first. That's what I'm going to touch first. Where does it hurt the most? For you. For some of you, it hurts the most in your family life. That's where God's going to bring healing. For some of you, it hurts the most in your, in your singleness. That's where God's going to bring healing. 
For some of you, it hurts the most in your sexuality. That's where God's going to bring healing. Where does it hurt the most? God is going to bring healing to those places when he comes again. Notice the depth of the light. Notice the breadth of the light. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forever. And you know what? That means that there will be no more darkness. And yet... We know that darkness is still around, which can only mean one thing. This has not been fulfilled yet, that we still wait for something, that we are still hoping for something, that we must continue to wait for the hidden God just as the people of Isaiah had to wait for this hidden God, and yet we do so with one significant difference, and that is God has already started partially to fulfill this promise For we have seen this child, and his name is Jesus. God has already started to fulfill this promise. The light has shined into the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And so, if you're asking the question, where do I turn in the midst of the darkness, when God feels like he's hiding, or when God actually is hiding, where do I turn? You turn to Jesus, and you meditate on his life, and you meditate most of all on his death. And you look at the cross, because at the cross we see a light which the darkness cannot overcome. At the cross we see a love that drowns out hate. At the cross we see a purity that dispels corruption. And at the cross we see a goodness that will put away all evil. So what the cross means is this. It means that whatever might be the case of why God is hiding from his face from you, And whatever your suffering means, it does not mean this. It does not mean that God does not love you. It does not mean that God is not for you. And it means that God himself has entered into the suffering and he has entered into the darkness. There was darkness at noonday. And he entered into it not to leave you alone, but to bring you out of it. For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He who did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not, future tense, will he not with him freely give us all things? And therefore, neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, principalities nor powers, nor all the darkness in all of the world can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of the Lord is never ceasing and his mercies never come to an end. This... This light comes with breath, and we must continue to look at it. So where do you go? You look to Scripture, you look to the Savior, but finally, you look to surrender. You know, one question that's been pressing throughout these chapters is this. Will the people trust in the Lord, or will they trust their own human ingenuity? That's what Ahaz was faced with. Will you trust in the Lord to defend his kingdom and his king and his throne and fulfill his promises? Or will you trust in human ingenuity? And Ahaz trusted in human ingenuity. And we see it again. Look in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. 
It says that Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, after like they get crushed, will say in pride and the arrogance of their heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. In other words, yes, we had a loss. Yes, it was big, but we can get to work and we can put things back together. We can solve this thing. We can fix this thing. We can figure this out. And that is an easy temptation to do when God seems hidden and the darkness is all around is we just start scrambling to do whatever we can to put the thing back together. But what often happens is the cobra effect. You know the cobra effect? It comes from like India when there were all these snakes in India and so the British government decided that they would pay a bounty on people who killed snakes and brought them in. Well, bad idea because what happened is the people in India started breeding snakes in order to bring them in. And they were getting paid for all these snakes. And then they stopped the bounty. And then what they do, they let all these new snakes back out into the wilderness. And so there were more snakes than there were before. In other words, their solution to the problem caused a deeper problem. It's like kudzu in Mississippi, if you've ever been there. Uh, I had this, the cobra effect the other day. I was, um, uh, we, we, uh, are changing our TV from on a stand to mount it on a wall, and I was unscrewing it. And if anybody knows anything about me, you, you know this, that um, I don't have any gifts with my hands, uh, and I should not be let anywhere near a drill. Um, so I'm constitutionally incapable. And so I decided uh, that I was, I was undoing the stand. And as I'm undoing the stand, um, I noticed that, the, uh, that the, there, was a, there was a strip screw. And so I decided, okay, I've got this. There's some drills here. Pam uses them. I'll get it out. <laughs> I forget, of course, to like, instead of waiting on Pam, which is what I should do, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to take matters in my hand. I got this. I'm a homeowner. So I grabbed this drill, and I put it, I put it in, the, in the screw in the TV, and I just go. And it's not coming. So I thought, oh, I know what you do. Yeah, I got to drill harder. I just got to press harder, right? Not a good idea. I had to pay a finished carpenter to go take my TV off the stand, right? Uh, it, it's the cobra effect. It's what we do. We, we try to, to fix things with our own resources, and it just makes it worse. And we think... But the problem is, is in our capability. But here's the irony. These people who are extremely self-reliant and say, we can do it. Even though it's gotten into a mess, we can fix it. They're also deathly afraid. Back at the beginning of, of chapter 7, I think it is, when they hear that the Assyrian army is coming, it says that they shake like the trees in the forest, shakes in the wind. And in verse 12, Isaiah says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. This is a fearful people. They are in dread. Now, how come a self-reliant people is so fearful? Well, let me ask you. Because America is one of the most self-reliant countries. It's kind of in our DNA, right? This is the place where anybody, through hard work and determination and initiative can achieve success and prosperity. And if people don't, then it's their fault. That's what we say. And yet, 
America is a nation that is deeply afraid. Our political decisions and discourse is all based on fear. Our decisions about college and career and family are all based on fear. And how do we, how do we protect ourselves from the darkness? We are deathly afraid. Why is it that a people who have the most safety and the most security relative to anybody in the world throughout all time, why are we also one of the most afraid people? Why are these people that are so self-reliant so afraid? Here's why. Because when you put your hope in that which cannot ultimately save, you will remain in perpetual fear. Because deep down, you know the sneaking suspicion is, me and this drill are not going to cut it. W.H. Auden, in a poem about Advent, said, Nothing can save us that is possible. That's right. Nothing can save us that is possible. And so you need to give up and surrender to the God of the impossible. You see, what Isaiah is calling the remnant to realize, and that's you and me, is that this is not, called, this is not going to come about through human ingenuity. Well, how is it going to come about? Look at verse 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. And that's why... Those who, who don't fear are able not to fear because they realize something, that there is a power greater than all the powers in the world, and that is God. And so Isaiah instructs the remnant, verse 13, don't fear what they fear or be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary to you. See, if you don't have a God that's big enough to scare you, you don't have a God that's big enough to save you. If you don't have a God that actually brings about a holy reverence and awe and you realize that it's a, it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, if you don't have that God, then you do not have a God who can get you out of this mess. But the remnant knows that God and because the remnant knows that God, they actually stand not afraid. Listen to their, how they face the Assyrian army and its onslaughts and its news. In chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. Emmanuel. Do you know him? Then be not afraid. And wait and hope in his coming. Amen.